Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. The first song we're going to sing this morning, I decided yesterday that we needed to sing it, and I need to tell you a little backstory for why we're singing this this morning. It's at the cross, it's number 129 in your hymnal, if you want to look it up so you can sing along with us. I'm a listener. Yesterday I was listening to sermons, as I do every day. I listen to preachers, I listen to church services, made even easier now because everybody's online. And so yesterday I was listening to a church service by a local church, a church right here in the Smyrna area. And they sang this song. I love the lyrics that Ralph Hudson wrote for this song. Look at the first verse. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? I really like that lyric. The book of Job, arguably the oldest book in the Bible, is the first place where you see human beings referred to as worms. And not just worms, but worms and maggots. That gives you some idea of Job's estimation of the distance between God and his holy righteousness, in in his complete separateness, in his uniqueness as a sinless, righteous God all the way down to sinful human beings who are not just sinful but wretched and God-hating and everything else we've been reading, everything else we've been seeing in the Bible. And so it is right that Job would refer to us as worms, and it is right that Hudson would refer to us as worms. So they were singing it yesterday, and they said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for a sinner such as I. And my ears perked up and I thought, those aren't the lyrics. Why would somebody change that? It's because most folks are willing to admit that they're sinners because the Bible says so. But when you go the rest of the way and you say, yeah, the Bible also says you're depraved, that you're wretched, that you're a maggot, That's when people go, well, now, hold on just a moment. I'm not that bad. And so they'll change the lyrics to songs like Amazing Grace and At the Cross. So we're going to sing it this morning the way that Hudson actually wrote it, which is for such a worm as I. And I want you to feel the amazement that he had when he asked that question. Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? 
I've written on the board to begin this morning the letters alpha, gamma, omega, nu, which means nothing to you if you're not a Greek reader, but it is pronounced agon. In a moment, you'll see why we're talking about this. If it is written phonetically in English letters, it'd be A-G-O-N, pronounced agon. That made its way right into the English language. Agony. You can see it right there. The verb form of agony is agonize. Well, that also comes right from the Greek language. If you were to read this with an English accent, it would be agonize, oh my. But the Z in, in Greek has a DZ sound, so would it be agonizomai? The reason that I bring this up is so that we can understand these two words because both the noun form and the verb form Paul uses right here at the beginning of chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. So turn to chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. In verse 29 at the very end of chapter 1, Paul has stressed, and for this purpose, I labor, agonizomai. Now that word agonizomai in Greek didn't mean agonize the way we think of agonizing. It's a word that was used for competitive sports. The best way to understand the word, think about the Summer Olympics. And think about somebody who's running in a race, and they're about to come in second. So they see that guy that's coming in first right in front of them, just mere fractions of a second ahead of them. And as they approach the finish line, that guy who's in second place gives it all he's got. He lived his whole life training and getting ready for this moment. This is that key moment, and he's putting everything he's got into trying to get ahead of the gold medalist. At that moment, he is agonizing. He is agonizomai. And that's what that word means, to strive with everything you've got. Paul says, for this purpose, the purpose of proclaiming Christ and admonishing every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. And then chapter 2, verse 1, remembering that there are no verse or chapter headings in Paul's original letter. There is no division there. The continuation of that thought is, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And that word struggle is agon. So he's used both the noun and the verb form of this same word in order to emphasize the amount of struggle, the amount of agonizing that he is putting into making sure that the folks who read this letter 
do not vary their faith, vary their thinking from Christ and Christ alone, Christ preeminently. In Colossae, there were a great many things that were pulling at people's minds and hearts, thoughts, intentions. As I told you in the introduction to the book of Colossians, the city was overrun with Greek philosophy. I don't know how much you know about philosophy. Philosophy is a way of trying to understand the purpose of life. Why is man here? But doing it from a humanistic standpoint, you begin by extricating God from the equation. And then you try to answer the question, what's the meaning of life? And so that kind of philosophy was running rife in Colossae. And I told you that Gnosticism was running rampant, as well as a very firm angel cult. There were people looking into angelology and the worshiping of angels. There were a great many things religiously philosophically and even socially that were pulling at the people of Colossae to try to get their minds off of Christ, off the singularity of Christ, into these other intellectual, philosophical, societal pursuits instead of thinking about Christ and Christ alone. By the way, I think that's every bit as true today We are certainly distracted by a great many things today, whether it's TV or movies or gameplay or social media or you can sit down at your internet and hours pass before you even know it. And then I have a quick question for you. What did you see on the internet the day before yesterday that stuck with you? Very little because you don't really retain it, you just kind of stare at it because that's become our new form of amusement. You know what the word amusement means, right? I mean, we we have amusement parks. To muse is to think, which is why the Bible says that we're to meditate on scripture, to really think about it deeply. You put the alpha negative in front of it, amuse, it means don't think. That's literally what amuse means. Don't think, just let whatever you're looking at just consume you with thoughtlessness. And the world right now is chock full of amusement. All these things, all these ideas, all these philosophies, oh my goodness, the amount of philosophy, the amount of religious philosophy, the amount of even political thought that intrudes on our Christian faith and that draws us away from the centrality and the importance of Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection and his fully completed redemption and salvation of his people. It is so easy to forget about that and start thinking about all the other stuff that the world throws at us on a constant basis. Okay, that's what Paul knows is going on in Colossae. And he's saying, I'm trying to get your minds back on what's important. I'm trying to remind you of Christianity and Christ and what is important. And I'm not just doing that casually. I'm not just dropping hints your way. I agonize at this. I work hard at this. 
to try to remind you because I know you're sitting in the midst of so many things that are trying to draw your attention away from the centrality and the importance of Christ. And so Paul could say, for this purpose, the purpose of proclaiming him, the purpose of admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, very important word that he keeps using, wisdom, the Greek Sophia. What it means is to have the prudence to understand how to implement the things of God in your life. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes when Paul starts talking about knowledge and wisdom. But the reason that he keeps bringing up the wisdom of Christianity is because Gnosticism made a very big deal, as all Greek philosophy did, made a very big deal of Greek wisdom. And Paul is saying all wisdom, all genuine understanding of your life, what it entails, why you're here, the purpose of life, can only be found in Christ. And all these other philosophies, all these other ideas that are pulling you away from Christ are only leading you astray because in Christ is found all the hidden wisdom of God. And so he emphasizes the wisdom. And I'm here, says Paul, to proclaim him to you and to admonish you, to tell you over and over again, to cajole you, to keep steering you the right way, to admonish you all and teaching every man with all wisdom so that the end result is that he can present every man complete in Christ. Self-completion is a very big philosophical idea and an idea that permeates so much of the church world to this very day. The idea that, yes, Christ did some stuff, but now you have to complete the work. He forgave your sin, but now you have to keep yourself morally pure, clean, and unspotted. He did the stuff to make it available, but now you have to complete the work. That's very common philosophy and theology that's out there. Here Paul is saying that we need to be taught over and over that our completeness is found in Christ. Everything we are lacking in godliness and goodness and holiness, and that would be all of it, that would be the entirety of goodness and holiness and godliness. Everything that we're lacking, we find in him. Therefore, we are complete in him. And people don't naturally know that. So Paul says, I have to keep teaching it over and over. And I have to keep admonishing people that this is the truth. This is the only truth. And the only wisdom, true wisdom that you're going to find in this lifetime is in Christ and him alone. Therefore, we keep proclaiming him over and over and over again admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man as complete in Christ for this purpose also, says Paul, I labor. I work the way that an athlete works when he's trying desperately to win the race, when he's digging down deep and running as hard as he can. I agonize to make sure that I tell you the truth of Christ so that your mind is not taken away to all these other ideas and thoughts 
and philosophies of man. I am striving according to his power. He empowers me to do this. This isn't human effort, he says. This is the power of God working in me and through me, and it is the very same power of God, says Paul, that is going to allow you to hear it, and that is going to empower you to understand the wisdom of God. Only God can tell you about God. Only God can enlighten you to understand anything about God. It is all God, completely God, and God alone. And he is found in human flesh in Jesus Christ. And we are completed in our standing in Jesus Christ. Us in him, him in us. And Paul says, and that's not by our power. You get no credit at all. It is all God and only God and only by his power is Paul able to continue striving this way because the power of God works in him. That's the way chapter 1 ends. Chapter 2 starts by continuing the same thought. For I want you, you Colossians, I want you to know how great a struggle, same word, agon, I want you to know what a great struggle, what great effort I put in on your behalf. And for those who were at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. In my introduction to the book of Colossians, I told you that Paul had never been to Colossae. This is the evidence right here. Instead, the church at Colossae was formed by Epaphras. Epaphras got his teaching from Paul, and then he carried that teaching to the Laodiceans and to the Colossians. And now Paul is writing to them because he has heard from Epaphras about the faith that is broken out in Colossae. And so Paul is writing to them in order to encourage them to stay the course. Stand firm. Don't be moved from what you've heard and what you've understood so far because the world is going to throw so much stuff at you to try to turn your attention away from Christ to all the other amusements of this life. I want you to know what a great struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for those who have not personally seen my face, so that their hearts may be encouraged. The Greek notion, concept of the heart was more expansive than our 21st century concept of our heart. We have a much more clinical, biological realization that the heart pumps the blood. And when we think about emotions, when we think about knowledge or even wisdom, we say that all occurs in the brain. The Greek notion of your heart was that it was the center of understanding. The center of your wisdom was a heart thing. And so Paul says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want your understanding. I want who you are in the inner person. I want you to be encouraged. And therefore, Paul's going to tell them a couple of the benefits that occur because they are Christian. And this is the way that they ought to live as Christian people in a Christian community. I want your hearts to be encouraged because you've been knit together in love. That is a great benefit of Christianity. I know that several months ago, 
while doing a series of messages on the benefits of Christianity, the Be the Christian series, I talked about that very thing, the tremendous benefit of being part of the church, the ecclesia, to be part of the community of believers. There's a tremendous advantage because, number one, our hearts are knitted together in love. We saw it this morning. Kellen stood up here and made his announcement. And you could feel it in the room. You could feel the joy. It was happiness that broke out in the room because we know Kellen and we've seen Kellen and we've watched Kellen's life. I've known Kellen since he, how, five, six? Something like that? Something like that? Man, I'm old. <laughs> <sighs> and I've watched the struggles of his life and now to see him in a happy place, we're all happy for him. We're all happy with him. We all share his joy. That's one of the advantages of being part of the community of the church, the community of believers. It is encouraging to your heart to know that you are knit together with other people and that they love you and that they're going to take care of you. And this is not just love, phileo love that he's referring to here. This is agape love. This is that self-sacrificial love. This is giving yourself away on behalf of other people. That kind of love. Now think about it for just a moment. If you were going through your life in this world all by yourself, would you feel great about yourself at this moment in time while the world is going insane? You'd be hiding under your bed somewhere, terrified to come out. Which, by the way, doesn't sound like a bad idea. <laughs> and, but the very fact that you were surrounded by people who are willing to sacrificially help you means that you're never really going to fall because there's going to be someone there to come alongside, to pick you up, to encourage you, to carry you along, to share both your griefs, your sorrows, and your joys. And it is a very reassuring thing to know that you are surrounded by that kind of community. So Paul starts in knitting the hearts together of the believers in Colossae, he starts by saying, you've been knit together in love. But not only that, you're attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Remember, a few minutes ago, I defined humanistic philosophy for you. Humanistic philosophy asks the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life, especially if God isn't part of the conversation? How then do you explain why people are here, why people do the things that they do? What is the purpose? What is the meaning of all that? And so Paul says, as opposed to worldly philosophy that can never really give you assurance, instead, Christ gives you full assurance of understanding. Instead of the wisdom, the world's wisdom, the philosophical wisdom that can never answer the really important questions, Christ can answer those questions. When you know Christ, when you know the plan of God, when you know the word of God, then that gives you a tremendous amount of assurance that you're going to be okay in this life. You have that peace that passes understanding because you know that an absolutely sovereign God is in control. 
If you just know the Word of God, it has a tremendous reassurance to you that even in these crazy days in this stupid world, God is still on His throne, and therefore you're going to be okay eternally, whatever happens on this planet. And what can men do to you? Men die. Men have no power over you eternally, but the God whose salvation is never ending and eternal has made you great and magnificent promises. And if you're okay with God, then you're okay. You're going to be all right. And you're going to have the full assurance that comes from the knowledge of God because only his word, only his genuine theology can give you that kind of assurance. So Paul says, your hearts are going to be encouraged because you've been knit together in love and you've attained to all the wealth, all the, the storehouse, the treasure house of God, the riches that come not in worldly money that decays and rots and will ultimately burn, but in genuine wealth that comes from understanding, real genuine understanding, and the full assurance that comes from that understanding. Is there anyone here that's willing to admit that when you came to understand the sovereignty of God, you actually found that comforting? Mm -hmm. Anybody whose hand is not up right now needs to go back and understand what the sovereignty of God actually means to you in your life. All the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in the true knowledge. Okay, so what's Gnosticism all about? What's Greek philosophy about? Trying, trying to find wisdom and knowledge. The attaining of wisdom is the highest goal of man according to Greek philosophy. Paul says, you can know all that and you still don't know anything until you come to a full understanding and the true knowledge of God. And then he defines what the true knowledge of God is. He says it is the mystery that is Christ himself. Yes. If you have the knowledge of Christ himself, then you understand something that most of the world does not understand. And that is why the world is wringing its great collective hands. That's why the world is afraid that we are going down the tube so quickly. That is why the world is afraid of what they see happening in the world. That is why the world has no assurance. But we have assurance. We have the peace that passes understanding. We have confidence. Where did we get all that? Because we learned the word of God. We understand the knowledge and the wisdom that comes from that. Therefore, we have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, the NASB translators added the words for clarity, added the words that is and the word himself. So that we get the phrase, that is Christ himself. Paul just used one word, Christos. That's the answer. It is. You want the answer? You want to know where you get real, true knowledge? You want to know where you get full assurance? You want to know where you get the wealth of God that comes to you through that full assurance? You want to know where you get hearts that are knit together with love? There's one answer to all of that, and Paul's single word answer is Christ. Christ. And that 
Paul says, is a mystery, mysterion, previously unrevealed truth, still unrevealed to great swaths of the world to this very moment. In other words, to understand the answer, which is Christ, it has to be revealed to you. You don't know it for any other reason than because God was really good to you. That is why we say he is sovereign and that his dealings with his own people is through grace, through kindness, through a mercy that you couldn't begin to deserve or understand. And so by that tremendous grace, he not only introduced himself to you, but he gave you the ability to recognize him and to begin to comprehend him. Now, Paul is going to say that's a tremendous amount of knowledge that philosophy cannot give you. Men's philosophy cannot give that to you. Men's religion cannot give that to you. Only God can reveal that wonderful mystery to you. And that wonderful mystery is, again, Christ. And Christ alone. You'll notice that Paul did not give us a list. Paul did not say, and now let me give you the list of the answers to the mystery of God so that you can understand philosophically the breadth of God. And instead, he says, there's one answer. There's one mystery of God through whom everything else about God is revealed. And that one thing is Christ. And that is why we say Christ alone. There's just no other way that you're going to be saved eternally than by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And you're only going to learn that through Scripture alone. So therefore, Paul wants people to understand the centrality, the importance, the singularity of Christ and because everything else in the world is pulling people away from Christ, because everything in this evil world and the prince of the power of the air is trying to distract and amuse you away from Christ, therefore Paul has to keep striving, agonizing, to keep pointing people, admonishing people, teaching people, instructing people to go back to the first cause, which is Christ and him alone. Got it? Got it. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In whom? In Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know anything about God? you got to go through Christ. That's why he said, I am the way, I am the truth, not I'm one of many truths, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So the storehouse of all the treasures that come from God 
and the wisdom and the knowledge that is necessary is all found in Christ. Okay, I told you a moment ago I was going to define the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is the collection and the comprehension of truth. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. Wisdom is the prudence to know how to walk out your life in the knowledge that you've been given. That is why there are two distinct ideas, two distinct categories between knowledge and wisdom. And Paul says the hidden treasures of God that will reveal to you both the knowledge of the truth and how to walk it out in your life, what to do with that knowledge and how you're going to represent it, present it, let it affect you in your lifetime. All of that is found in Christ. He is still the answer to all of it. So you're going to result in a true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, says verse 4, I say all that, all that that I've been trying to elucidate to you. I say this in order so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. People are really good at sounding really smart and really erudite. Have you ever sat through a presentation on why you should buy a timeshare? <laughs> Okay, those guys know how to use persuasive arguments. That's my whole point. They know how to use language in such a way that by the time they get done talking, you're thinking, you know, that's not a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. But they're going to convince you that it's not such a bad idea. Yes, Joni? My uh, God, is enticing words. Enticing words, Absolutely. They're going to use those words to draw you where? To draw you toward them, toward their ideas, and away from Christ. And so Paul says, the reason that I keep going back and saying this over and over, the reason I'm agonizing at it, the reason I am striving and teaching and admonishing you over and over, is so that no one can delude you, which is to fool you. No one's going to delude you through their persuasive arguments, through their clever words, through the ideas that appeal to your flesh, toward the ideas that make you feel good, that are going to convince you that you're going to be a better person if you do this, or that you're going to be more likable, or that God himself is going to appreciate you more if you just do this. Paul is saying anything that draws you away from the singularity and centrality of Christ is delusional. It's deluding you. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, remember he's writing this letter, he has not met the Laodicean or the Colossian church in person. Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit joined together by the unifying Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. But he's also saying here, 
I'm with you in the struggles that go with this faith. I'm with you in how hard it is to walk out your life in this world and not be persuaded by the many, many tangential voices that are pulling at you constantly. I'm with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That's two things. Good discipline is, that word means orderliness. I've seen the way that you're conducting your lives. Epaphras has told me how the faith of Jesus Christ has affected the way you walk out your life, the way that you order your life. And I've heard about that good discipline And the stability of your faith, in other words, you are standing in Christ and you're not letting yourselves be swayed by all the other voices. And I'm encouraging you in that. That's why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you so that your heart may be encouraged because I've heard that you are standing up for Christ and that you are standing for him alone and that you're standing there solidly. And so I've heard about the good order of your life and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. That is what I earlier defined as wisdom. Not only having the knowledge of Christ and who he is, but then knowing what to do with it. And Paul says, walk it out. Not only is he saying, This is your behavior in life. But he's saying, this is what informs your life. Every decision that you make, everything that you do, whatever your hands find to do, think it through with Christ as the center of it. Is this a good idea or is it not for Christ's sake? I, as an ambassador of Christ, I don't mean me, I'm speaking for all of us, as ambassadors of Christ in this sin-soaked world, how should we behave ourselves and how should we conduct ourselves? What should be our manner of communication? What should we talk about? What are the things that interest us? Or are we going to be pulled away by all the amusements that the world so readily gives us? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord Make sure you're walking in that. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. I have a tree line in my backyard. Trust me, this ties in. Stick with me. My story gets better. I have a very long tree line in my backyard. And whenever the storms come and the winds come up, Almost inevitably, there's a tree laying on its side in my backyard. Which trees are those that get blown around and get blown down? It's the ones that didn't have any depth of root. Oh, now you're getting the connection. Paul says we need to be rooted, firmly rooted in Jesus Christ, and then we will grow up with firm roots so that we're not shaken by the storms of life so that our faith is not toppled over. Be deeply rooted, firmly rooted, and then built up in him and established, unmoving, unwavering, unchanging, established in the faith of Jesus Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed. Epaphras told you about the faith. He told you about Christ. He showed it to you from the scripture. He identified who Christ is and what he has accomplished, his finished work and what he has done. Therefore, live by that, rooted and grounded and growing and built up in him, being established in your faith the same way you were instructed in your faith. Because if you walk away from the biblical teaching, it's going to be very easy for this world to draw you away and pull you away. You're going to become whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're concentrating on, whatever you give the power of persuasion in your life. That's the thing that you're going to be drawn to. Here, I'll give you a quick example. I taught my kids when I was teaching them to drive that when you're driving, you look forward, always forward. You can glance at the mirrors, but look forward. If your eye looks at something off to the left side of the road, you'll start drifting to the left. Everybody knows that's true. If you're driving and you look off to the right, you're going to drift to the right. It's just an unconscious reality that always happens. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't allow yourself to be influenced by the things of this world. They're going to draw you away from that straight and narrow of Christ because he is sufficient. He's everything you need. He is the fully accomplished Savior in whom we have redemption and everlasting promises. And so don't look off to the left. Don't look off to the right. Don't let your mind be engaged in these things that are going to draw you away from Christ. Rather, stay firmly established in your faith the same way you were instructed in the faith. I realize... That I've been doing this here, standing here at this pulpit, I realize I've been saying the same stuff for 20 years. And I'm going to keep saying it till I die. I'm just going to keep talking it and keep talking it until God doesn't let me talk anymore. Because there is nothing else that we can rest in. There is nothing else that we can trust And if we collectively become bored with the teaching of the Bible, then we're going to go looking for other stuff to amuse ourselves. And there is so much amusement that has entered the modern church these days because they think they have to entertain people. They have to compete for that entertainment dollar with the whole rest of the world. Instead of just concentrating week after week on thus saith the Lord. Because that's the only place we're going to get genuine teaching, instruction, and wisdom. And so Paul says, be firmly rooted and built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Paul began this whole section by saying our hearts are knitted together in love. One of the characteristics of genuine Christianity is genuine sacrificial love for each other. And overflowing with thankfulness, gratitude toward God and toward each other and toward Jesus Christ and toward the fact that you're, let's see, what should I say? Not going to hell. Okay, that'd be a very big reason to be really, really thankful. That's a starting point. Or as we sang this morning, 
that your Savior bled for you, that he gave his sacred head for a worm like you. Say thank you. Thank you. He's the one that gets you up in the morning. He's the one that gives you food to eat. He's the one that keeps you in your right mind. He's the one that gives you the ability to do whatever it is you do through the course of a day. Say thank you. Be overflowing with gratitude. Understand that your understanding is a gift from God. The fact that you comprehend anything about God or know anything about Christ or have faith in his finished work is a gift from God. Say thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's all he's done for you is be gracious to you. You ought to be overflowing with gratitude. And Paul says here it's one of the characteristics of genuine Christianity. Knitted together in sacrificial love with one another and overflowing with thankfulness. That's what Christianity looks like. So let's put that whole sentence together, starting at verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So part of your walk as a Christian, as you are walking out what you have received in Jesus Christ, part of that walk is your overflowing gratitude. That's just expected Christian behavior. And I think if you begin to have any knowledge, any wisdom of who God is and what he has done for you, it shouldn't be hard for you to be thankful. I shouldn't have to cajole you into being thankful. If you have any comprehension of God, you just should be thankful, especially if you have any comprehension of who you are and what you're like and that the God of eternity chose you out of grace and love and revealed himself to you. Wow. Say thank you. See to it. Here's the whole point. This is everything I've been driving at this morning. This is why Paul is striving and struggling. This is why Paul's been agonizing. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and vain deception. Why would he even have to say that if the church at Colossae was not constantly being bombarded by man-made philosophy, man-made wisdom, the ideas of men that he calls vain deception? First off, it's empty, it's vanity, it's pointless. Secondarily, it's deceiving. It's drawing you away from Christ. It's promising you things that cannot possibly be yours long term because if you're not in Christ, nobody can make you any positive promises. And he's aware that you're going to encounter people who are going to try to pull you away from the singularity of Christ through philosophy and through this kind of vain deception that's going to appeal to your ego, that's going to appeal to your fleshliness, to draw you away from Christ. This philosophy, this empty deception, he says, is according to the tradition of men. In other words, not from God. It's according to the traditions of men. 
Traditions are just ideas that get handed down from person to person, and then a bunch of people adhere to it, and next thing you know, that's just the way they do it, because that's the way they've always done it, and they're just going to continue to do it that way, because that's how grandma and grandpa did it, and that becomes a tradition. And he says the traditions of men is not the same as the wisdom of God. But the traditions of men will pull you away from God. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deceit, vain deception, according to the traditions of men, but then worse, it's also according to the elementary principles of this evil world. Those two words, elementary principles, is a single Greek word that actually means the rudiments. I was a drummer growing up. Uh, any instrument that you learn to play, you first have to learn the rudiments of the instrument. You don't start by being brilliant. You start by learning to play a C scale. Those are the rudiments. And in fact, in drumming, the essential rudiments are actually called the essential rudiments. You have to learn those in order to become an adequate drummer. Okay, it's the same concept, same idea, same word here. Paul is saying that there are rudiments, basics of this life, that are part of this world and this evil world system and the prince of the power of the air and the rulers of the darkness of this world. There are rudiments that everybody on this planet kind of has to play by. Anybody recently found yourself doing something that... You didn't really want to do it, but, well, that's just the way stuff goes. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. Those are the rudiments of this world, the elementary principles of this world. And Paul is saying, don't become captive to the evil of this world. Don't become captive to the system of this world. Don't become captive to the fact that there's just a way that the whole world works and it's real easy to shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is. I guess I'll go along to get along. That's adhering to the rudiments of this world. And Paul very precisely says, don't do that. Don't become captive through philosophy and through empty deception according to the traditions of men, and according to the elementary, rudimentary principles of this world. Instead of all that, instead of the philosophy of men and the empty deception and the traditions of men and the rudiments of this world, instead, if you're going to be taken captive by anything, he says, be taken captive to Christ. Yes. And notice how he draws the contrast between them. He says that the rudiments of this world, the traditions of men, the empty deception and philosophy of men, he juxtaposes that against Christ. You can have one or you can have the other. You can't have both. There was a quote from John MacArthur that I heard years ago that I've just always really liked. He said, you can be right or you can be popular, but you can't be both. Same idea here in Paul. You're either following the rudiments of this world and the vain philosophies and traditions of men, or you're captive to Christ. But you can't be both. 
You take sides with one or the other. And if you are captive to Christ, slave to Christ, servant to Christ, then you walk out your life with the knowledge that you are bought with a price, you are not your own, you belong utterly and completely to a master, a savior, a Lord, who is Lord over your life, or you're captive to this world and everything this world has to offer. And those are the choices. And Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deceit, according to the traditions of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Okay, so why the contrast? Why that enormous contrast that he's just drawn between the philosophy, the traditions, the rudiments of this world, and Christ? Because in Christ and only in Christ, in Christ alone, you find verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. You want to see God? You want to know God? You want to learn God? Christ, that's the answer. It's always the answer. It's the only answer Paul gives us. Christ and Christ alone. Because in him dwells all the overflowing fullness of deity in bodily form. And Christ knew that. Which is why when Thomas said to him, show us the Father, he says, have I been so long with you? You still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Paul would pick that idea up, which he got directly from Christ and says that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. Okay, so let me draw the contrast just as big and uh, visually as I possibly can for you. <clears throat> you can have the fullness of deity that resides in Christ or... You can have the philosophy, the rudiments, the traditions of this evil world. Pick one. That. <laughs> that one. That one. I'm with you. That one. Because you can't have both. And so Paul strives. Paul agonizes to make sure that people understand the reality of who Christ is, the fullness and the completeness of Christ, and why our faith stands on Christ and nothing else. Not the traditions of men. Not the theological musings of men. Not the stuff that people make up. Not the traditions of the church or the traditions of men. And certainly not the the evil rudiments of this God-forsaken world, you can see now why he would just keep driving that point home. So that's why for 20 years we keep driving that point home because that's all that matters in this lifetime. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form, and in him you've been made complete. If you're complete, what do you got to add? Nothing. 
Hebrews 10 14 says that he perfected forever all those who he sanctified okay if he sanctified you if he set you apart which work he did on the cross then when he said it's finished it was actually finished and you stand completed teleos to the furthest extent you stand complete in Christ therefore what has this world got to offer you that's better than that what do the traditions of men have to offer you that's better than complete perfected in Jesus Christ in other words I don't care what the question is I don't care what the philosophy the tradition or the rudiment is the answer to everything you need to know for all of eternity there's only one answer and that answer is always the same it's always Christ Amen. that's the answer for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him you've been made complete and he is the head over all rule and all authority Paul is not necessarily just referring to worldly powers and authorities there rulers and authorities he's talking about the rulership and authorities of the prince of the power of the air he's talking about what goes on in hell as well as on earth he is the head he is the arche he is the chief one he is the first one he is the head over all rule and all authority which means anywhere that you can find any rulership or any authority anywhere he's over it and in him in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands that's the next argument that we're gonna have to understand and look at historically and from the gaze of the new covenant and there's just not time enough for that this morning so that's where we're going to pick up next week everybody heave a heavy sigh <sighs> I know that was a lot of stuff for one morning but I hope you gain some benefit from it because Paul wants you to know all that so that your hearts will be reassured and if you understood even a portion of what I've said this morning, I got to ask you, wasn't that reassuring? Yes. It sure does make us feel better to know that we are safely in Christ. Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit of God has sealed us and everything necessary for our full and complete salvation and eternal redemption is found in Christ. And that will give you the peace that passes worldly understanding. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing that this stupid, foolish, argumentative, traditional, rudimentary world can do to pull you away from Christ because he has sealed you and guaranteed you. And that is very, very good news. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word 
and studied the sovereign grace of God. 